This is after Jesus' arrest. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? Uh, If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the stove pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king 
but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your faithfulness, your faithfulness in creation, in all the amazing diversity of this world, in the way that you uphold this world by the power of your word. We praise you for your faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that now you may help us to see that faithfulness and that truth and to respond rightly to it. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 1982, US First Lady Nancy Reagan was visiting Longfellow Elementary School in Oakland, California. And a schoolgirl asked her what to do if her peers ever offered her drugs. Nancy Reagan answered, just say no. And over the following two decades, that reply became the catch cry for a massive national campaign as part of the US's war on drugs. Now, the campaign was accompanied by the uh, Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program in schools, uh, the DARE it was called, and it was designed to give kids knowledge and permission and resources to resist peer pressure about drugs. Did it work? Well, <laughs> It raised awareness about drugs, certainly. It helped kids to know about drugs. So drug awareness, yes. But uh, analysis of the data has concluded that the program does little or nothing to combat substance use in youth. Why? Uh, because, according to analysis, it provided a simplistic answer. It didn't deal with all the other factors in their lives that led them to take drugs. Now, we could be tempted to take a similar approach to dealing with truth problems in, in our world and in our lives. Yeah? Why can't we just say no to lies? Just tell the truth. Why can't we all just tell the truth? Why don't I give you some motivational talks over this weekend with, with seven or nine or whatever number of tips uh, to be more truthful? That's because the truth problem is much bigger than this. Self-help is not the answer. In the last talk, I talked a little bit about the truth problem in our hearts. And uh, deception also affects so many other things. So many of our small day-to-day -day interactions 
uh, and all the different things in our world. There's all sorts of solutions to the truth problem on offer in our world. So uh, last year, year before, Nobel Prize winning journalist Maria Ressa, uh, in her uh, acceptance speech of the Nobel Prize, took aim at US corporations whose corporate models are destroying good journalism. Uh, it's got to do with social media and everything, taking over from good journalism. And her solution? Well, she says the size of the corporations means that we all just have to work much harder so that we can all be the good. And so her Nobel Prize winning lecture included a display of a T-shirt with a slogan on it, which said, believe there is good in the world. And then it sort of capitalised the letters of be the good. Be good. That's her answer. Australian journalist Bernard Keynes written a book called Lies and False Falsehoods about truth problems in Australian politics. Uh, and he exposes these lies and then at the end he says, what's the answer? Well, we need to be good people. We need to, to find common ground in the truth and engage in real community instead of social media and just listen to each other. We all just need to say no to the lies. They're self-help solutions to our truth problem. They might fix part of the problem, but none of them in the end goes towards addressing the problem that lies deep in our hearts. And I'm convinced that the most fundamental answer to our truth problem is actually not a self-help solution at all. It's not a slogan, it's not a simple fix, but it's an answer that goes to the heart. It's an answer that's found in the Bible, and, and the answer at the heart of this answer is the gospel, the message about God's Son, Jesus Christ. As we've seen in this post-truth world, the Bible's diagnosis of our truth problem rings true. The Old Testament prophet, again, Jeremiah, declared, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But the Bible doesn't just diagnose the heart problem. It also gives us a heart answer. And the answer is not a self-help solution. We need help from outside ourselves. We need help from God. That's where the Bible is radically different from all the other solutions that the world and its religions offer to us. You know that all the religions of the world say, the problem is out there and the answer is in here. The Christians know that actually the problem's in, in here. It's not out there. And the answer is not in me. The answer is in God. The answer is in the Lord Jesus. It's got to be outside of me. That helps to answer our truth problem. But how? Well, the Bible gives us a reason for truth. God is not silent. He's graciously revealed himself to us. He gives us a truth that exists outside of ourselves. And so almost 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem, uh, Jesus of Nazareth came face to face with a post-truth politician. And on that day, power prevailed and truth died. Or so it seems. So we can find this account of Jesus' pre-crucifixion trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Uh, it's there in each of the four books in the New Testament, the Gospels, and we're focusing here, I'm going to focus here on John's Gospel, the one that uh, Stacey just read for us. Uh, Jesus' trial before Pilate. It's because John's account focuses especially on issues of truth and power. 
Uh, there's political power games going on here that we read about in, in this account in John's Gospel. And it's consistent um, with what we know about Pilate from other sources outside of the Bible. Um, for, for most of his governorship, actually, Pilate had been um, quite powerful and highly antagonistic uh, towards the, the Jewish, the Judean people. Um, the, these are descendants of Israel who had been forcibly occupied by the Romans and placed under Pilate's charge. And at this point in Pilate's life, though, his grip on power is actually quite weak. Uh, there's a particular time in his life he's got a patron in Rome and um, he's either dead or in major trouble. Sejanus uh, is his name. And Pilate's actually quite weak right now. So at this point, the Judean leaders, they've got an upper hand. Uh, at this point, they can get what they want. And what they want right now is for Jesus to be executed. So they recognise that only the Romans have the power to execute Jesus as a criminal. They can't do it. The Romans are the occupying power. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate. Pilate tries to find out what this Jesus is actually guilty of. So Pilate's going, maybe is Jesus leading an uprising against the Romans? So Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 33, 35. Jesus replies, well, he has a kingdom, but it's nothing to do with political power struggles. Rather, his kingdom's not about these power struggles. It's about truth. So we see, verse 37, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And that doesn't cut any ice with a cynical post-truth politician. For Pilate, truth? That's just not a thing. Who cares about truth? What's truth? Pilate says. And it's for the rest of the trial, it's clear that it's about power. It's not about truth. So you think about truth. Jesus is clearly not guilty of anything deserving death, and Pilate knows that. Now, normally, Pilate would be happy to let Jesus go. Not because he's particularly an honourable politician, it's just why bother? You know, why bother going to the hassle of putting an innocent person to death? But the Judean leaders threaten Pilate. They know he's weak, and they use that power over him. They tell him they'll make his political position very difficult if he doesn't comply with their wishes, that is, with Caesar. And, and, and the Judean leaders, they threaten him. But what Pilate does, he tries to turn the tables. He uses Jesus as a chance to, to display his petty superiority, to prove the weakness of these Judean charges. So he's got Jesus, and Jesus is being used now as a pawn. He dresses Jesus up, mocks him as a king. He says, here's your king, guys. I'm going to beat you, beat him because you want me to. Ha, ha, mob rule prevails. Now the crowd's crying out for him to be crucified. Pilate cries, behold your king. And Pilate wins his game because they say, we have no king but Caesar. Gotcha. The oppressed victims reply. So throughout the story, truth keeps losing. And Jesus' death comes about through tribalism, manipulation, pragmatism, power games. Now, if you've read the rest of John's Gospel, and I hope you have, and if you haven't, take an hour or so to do it. Wonderful. You'll know that Pilate's question, what is truth, is actually far more significant than Pilate himself realises at this point. Uh, the reports of Jesus' words and actions, especially in John's Gospel, focus a lot on the concept of truth. What is truth? 
Well, there's actually three perspectives on truth in John's Gospel that that work together. Uh, They reflect the the same kinds of important issues we've we've seen so far um, uh, in the last talk. Firstly, truth often involves faithfulness. So the idea of truth is truth is about keeping your promises, being, being true to your word. And that's a concept of truth that's especially strong in the Old Testament. Uh, I mean, indeed, we, we see it, we, we sang the song, Great is Your Faithfulness. Uh, that's coming from those statements about God's faithfulness and truth, especially in the Old Testament. God can be relied on to keep his word and his people. He's, he's, he's firm, he's secure. Um, secondly, truth is that, that deeper, more sort of philosophical idea. It's about what's real, what's really true in life and in the world as opposed to what's just an appearance. It's the kind of idea of truth you find in, um, you know, when, when people think more generally about truth, sort of philosophical reflection, ancient and modern. But thirdly, though, truth is often just a, a day-to-day reality. It's just about being accurate. It's about the facts. Uh, the kind of idea you'd find in, in the news, you know, amongst reporters, but also in law courts, in testimony, in history and politics. What actually happened? What's actually true? What's the actual facts? So truth is about faithfulness. Truth is about reality. Truth is about accuracy to the facts. And the wonderful things about this is in John's Gospel, all of these perspectives all come together in the person of Jesus Christ. And that all matters for us because it means... Jesus addresses our truth problem, not just at the theoretical level, but at the level of our very existence. Because when Jesus brings truth, he brings life, a life of knowing God, a life of joy, a life of loving and being loved by others, a life that lasts forever. I'll take you on a very short tour of John's Gospel to show you what I mean. Right at the beginning of John's Gospel, brings us right back into the fundamental reality of God and his purposes for creation. It describes Jesus as the fulfilment of the Old Testament hopes that we looked at in the last talk. John chapter 1, Jesus is interested, is introduced as the Word of God. And in verse 14, John says, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remind you of anything? Abounding in chesed and emet, love and faithfulness. It means Jesus is in fact God revealing himself to us. And what in particular does God reveal to us? Grace and truth. Love and faithfulness, chesed and emet, that forms the foundation for hope and joy. Jesus reveals God's grace and truth, his gracious love and his truth. God fulfills his promises to forgive and rescue us and bring us life in relationship with him forever. And that's why later in the gospel, Jesus speaks about things like true worshippers who will worship the Father in spirit and, and truth. That's why he calls himself the true Bread from heaven, as Old Testament promises, describes the sacrificial death on the cross as true food, true drink. Jesus provides what we truly need to live. And not just physical blessings, more fundamental and true, knowing knowing God truly, knowing God's love and that life forever with him. But Jesus' truth is not always comfortable. So close to the beginning of the gospel, John also describes Jesus as the true light. 
chapter 1, verse 9. And in the rest of John's Gospel, Jesus keeps describing himself using the concept of light. And light is actually closely related to truth. Light shows things up for what they really are. Light exposes darkness. Jesus, as truth and light, calls us to account for our wrongdoing, our sin. He shines a light into the darkness of our lives and shows what's really true in our lives so he won't let us get away with deceiving or deceiving ourselves even. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, My judgment is true. Just like the Father, Jesus brings judgment for our deeds and our lives, both now and into eternity. And for those who don't love the truth, that's not good news. In John's Gospel, especially chapter 8, we see various ways in which Jesus' light and truth confront people who prefer to live in darkness and deception. They remain in the devil's lies in chapter 8. Rather than admitting their darkness, they try to kill Jesus instead. They can't handle the truth. So they seek to snuff it out. And those people, as Jesus says, remain under God's judgment. But for those who listen to Jesus and who allow Jesus to expose the truth of their lives, Jesus' truth is deeply liberated. Jesus says of them, the truth will set you free. Jesus allows us to escape from deception rather than cover it up. It's not that like Jesus sort of preaches a message of, of, of just pure, you know, therapy that tries to cover up the cracks. He doesn't just come along and try to boost our self-esteem so we feel better about ourselves. Or he doesn't try to create safety through saying you're not allowed to say certain things. He doesn't do those things. He speaks words of truth that expose reality. But in that way, Jesus' truth truly liberates us because through Jesus, we can handle the truth. We can handle the truth about ourselves. We can know ourselves as sinners who are deeply loved by God. And we can be truly safe and rejoice in the depths of God's love for us. But what exactly is this truth that sets us free? How does it happen? Just in those days leading up to his death, Jesus teaches his disciples more about himself and about the events that are about to take place. Uh, chapters 13 to 17. John chapter 14, he tells them he's about to go away to prepare a place for them, a place of life and relationship with God, his Father. But they don't understand how it can work. But Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The point is that the focus of all the things that bring life and relationship with God, including, including the truth, are in him. It's not just that Jesus speaks the truth. He is the truth. He's not just a messenger of the truth. He is actually the message. And knowing the truth about God can only come through knowing 
Jesus himself, this truth, the ultimate truth about God, which brings life and freedom. It's not just sort of a relative thing. It's not just about me, this ever-changing rainbow that's ever relative to everyone's point of view. You know, depending on where you look, you see a different rainbow. You know, that's how it works with rainbows. No, that's not what it is. No, truth is personal. And more than that, truth is about a particular person, Jesus Christ. How do we know this person? How do we know him? How do we, how do we get to know this person? Well, through what he says. So Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, God's Holy Spirit will come to them. The Spirit will be with them, teaching the truth. And he will remind them of Jesus' words. That's why he's called three times the Spirit of Truth. Words that come from the Father himself. The Father's word is also truth. We can know Jesus through God's word. God's word which is alive and active by the work of God's Spirit. Where do we find this word? It's actually there in John's Gospel. (laughs) There it is. And the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament. So what in particular do we need to know the truth if, uh, in terms of the truth about this person, Jesus? Well, the key to understanding is that event that was central to Jesus' work in this world, his death on the cross. And like first glance, Jesus' death seems to have a, a simple political explanation. You know, he was killed by the people who criticised him. So you could say, okay, what happened there? Well, what did Jesus do? He spoke truth to power. And he died as a result. Simple, isn't it? It's all political, that's what happened. And as one sense, that's an accurate picture of what happened. And yet it's not. Because as John's Gospel continues, it's increasingly clear there's far more going on than that. Jesus' death isn't just an unfortunate side effect of human power struggles. Jesus is actually all the way through in full control of his own death on the cross. Right from the start. He's... He's in control. He says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. His death is his plan and Jesus' death is his father's plan. It's actually the ultimate display of God's love for us. He dies for our sake. That's how he brings us eternal life. That's why truth and life can't be separated from Jesus' death on the cross for us. In fact, Jesus' death for us is what brings us truth and life through a relationship with God. Through his death, Jesus removes God's judgment against us. We deserve death for our sins. Jesus dies in our place, taking God's judgment. He deals with our sin. He deals with our darkness. And that's why when Jesus faces Pilate, he tells Pilate. Do you notice that there? Chapter 9 and verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. He's got no real power. Jesus has come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And he does that ultimately by dying on the cross for us. Jesus isn't just some brave hero who who speaks truth to power and dies as a result. He's God's son. He expresses God's truth and his love and his power by dying for us. And that's how he sets us free. How do we know it's true, though? How do we know that, that these words about Jesus that we've got in our Bibles here, how do we know it's not just a sham? How do we know it's not just an elaborate hoax? 
Maybe it's just a big conspiracy theory. Well, John's Gospel itself, Jesus in John's Gospel, raises the issue. If you read John chapter 7, that's the question, John chapter 7. John describes a lot of people who are actually saying Jesus is a charlatan, leading people astray. And that's why John reminds us that we can know this truth about Jesus through testimony. Testimony is about bearing witness to the facts. And John's Gospel describes all sorts of people and groups who bear witness to the truth of Jesus' words and actions. They include John the Baptist, especially important in linking linking, uh, Jesus to God's Old Testament promises, and Jesus himself and God through the Scriptures himself and the Holy Spirit. And the trustworthiness of these words about Jesus are confirmed by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He was seen by witnesses. Jesus' resurrection from the dead vindicates his death and demonstrates it achieves what Jesus said it would achieve. Jesus' resurrection testifies powerfully to the truth of Jesus' claims about himself and his work. And that's why the disciples themselves are told to be witnesses. They saw Jesus' actions and they heard his words and they witnessed his resurrection from the dead. They've testified to the fact that he's alive and brings life. So you see, Jesus' resurrection isn't just something that has to be accepted blindly. I'm reading a book um, that was uh, led to me by a relative who he's really interested in kind of these near-death experiences and sort of, you know, reports of people, you know, coming back from the dead. I'm reading this book where someone gathered all these stories together. I'm reading it because I want to talk to to this relative about it. And he he gives us all these stories about sort of people who've come back from, from the dead and have appeared. And as you read these stories, these stories are stories where you know, someone has come back from the dead and appeared to someone, and they've kind of told the story. And one of them, he, he, the guy who wrote the book, tells the story himself. And when you read the story, the story is, well, you know, I was good friends with this guy. It was Victor Chang, you know, the, the heart surgeon. He said, I was good friends with Victor Chang. And one day I was sort of sitting in my study, and I was worried, and I just heard the voice of Victor Chang tell me it was going to be okay. And that was his story of someone risen from the dead. I go, okay, and then, he, and then he says, and I believe all these other stories too because there's so many stories. But there's no, that's kind of testimony. But as I'm reading it, I'm going, yeah, but do I just have to take your personal word for it, for what, for what you felt? That's very different to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because these disciples, many of them saw Jesus' actions, they heard his words, They've testified to the fact that he's alive and brings life. And there's so many of them. That's the thing. It's different to someone just having a personal experience. So Jesus' resurrection isn't just something that has to be accepted blindly. Now, yes, of course, Jesus' resurrection needs faith. But what's faith? Faith isn't a leap in the dark. Faith involves trust in testimony found in the Bible, there in John's Gospel. There's excellent solid historical reasons to listen to this testimony and to trust it. And this claim to truth can't be ignored. It demands a response. The most fundamental response is what I've just said. Believing, faith. Um, Just in case you weren't aware, they're not two different ideas. In in the New Testament um, Greek, believing and faith um, in English are translating the same um, root root word idea. Believing or faith, it's a response to the truth. And what does it involve? Well, 
The concept of truth in John's gospel has multiple dimensions, and the response of believing or faith also has multiple dimensions. Faith, believing, involves believing the facts, you know? Uh, you see that in John chapter 9, verse 35, hearing the testimony from the witnesses, reading it, the testimony we now have recorded in the gospels, being persuaded that the testimony truly represents what actually happened in the real, actual historical life of a real person, Jesus Christ. But faith also involves believing the reality, the facts point to. Near the end of the gospel, uh, John sums up that saying by saying, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So believing, it doesn't just mean believing that Jesus was a historical figure, but that he's God revealing himself to us. Believing that Jesus has risen from the dead, is alive, gives eternal life to all who believe in him. And it involves believing God's promises of eternal life. John's Gospel proclaims that God is faithful. He's shown his faithfulness through Jesus Christ. Faith involves actually entrusting ourselves to God, the trustworthy and faithful God, living life now, knowing that he loves us and will love us into eternity, trusting in his faithfulness. And finally, because of all these things, faith involves trusting a person. Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus to bring us to God, to bring God's love to us, to remove our judgment, to bring us life and forgiveness through his death on the cross. As John famously says in, as Jesus sorry, famously says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So because we think about truth, we need to think about trust. So let's think a little bit more about believing, faith, trust. Um, flying the passenger plane. Um, and John and Jenny, you've been flying all over the place. <laughs> Still feels unbelievably magical to me. Now, an Airbus A380, okay, takeoff weight of more than half a million kilograms. And that gigantic assemblage of metal and people and luggage can be airborne and fly around the world. It's just amazing, incredible. But I still fly. Why not? You know, why? Because not, it's not actually because I've got an intimate knowledge of aeronautical engineering. Now, I don't know exactly how it all works. But why? It's because I have faith. Now, it's not blind faith. My faith is based on good reasons. I know lots of other people who've flown. I trust, you know, reasonably the airline's business models and government regulations that incentivize everyone to make, you know, the pilots especially and the crew to prioritize safety. The statistics tell me that flying is, on average, far less dangerous than other activities I engage in, like driving cars, for example. <laughs> I've studied some physics, so you know I've seen those basic wing lift diagrams, and I kind of I get it. I can't explain all the details. Every time I've flown, my faith has been rewarded. I've always arrived in the end, and I know other people who've flown as well. <laughs> so I keep hopping on planes, even though I can't tell you exactly how they work. And the thing is, it's far more effective than trying to fly overseas by flapping my own arms. <laughs> and that idea of hopping on a plane was helpful when a family friend of mine was considering becoming a Christian several years ago. So he checked out the Bible. He didn't know absolutely everything there was to know about Jesus. You know, he still had significant questions. He couldn't explain all the details, but he knew enough to have confidence in Jesus. So he looked at the facts and they checked out. He believed that God was real, that Jesus was God's son who died for his sins to give him eternal life. 
So what he actually did was he took the step of actually trusting Jesus. No, he, he hopped on the plane, so to speak. So he, he, he gave up his futile attempts to fly by flapping his own arms all by himself. He put his life in Jesus' hands. And then quite rightly, he kept asking questions. He sought to understand better how it all worked, etc. In many ways, that's similar to my own journey of faith. We have lots of Christians throughout history. So because today, faith, when you say faith, it's often viewed as a, as a general religious feeling. You know, faith is about something, sense of something out there. And in that view, in the world's view, the most um, important thing about faith is the subject, the person who believes. And it doesn't really matter what you believe, as long as you sort of got faith in something. But according to the Bible, according to Jesus, it's entirely the other way around. What matters most is the object, Jesus. The truth about Jesus comes before faith. Faith is first and foremost all about Jesus, not about our own religious feelings. The same thing applies to, to other mundane, more mundane kinds of faith. You know, think about flying. You know, imagine I want to fly to, to the United States. You know, hypothetically, I could just decide that I need to believe in myself more. <laughs> so I could just try work out lots of faith. You know, be really, you know, flap my arms really hard. Or alternatively, I could just realise that's ridiculous and instead do the rational thing and hop on the plane. Both of those scenarios involve faith, but only one kind of faith is actually going to get me to the United States. That's because only one kind of faith is in something that's actually true. Because what gets me to the United States is not actually ultimately my faith. It's the plane gets me there. And it's because I'm on it. Planes are trustworthy. My arms aren't. And if I want to get there, I need to have faith in the plane. That means hopping on the plane. According to the Bible, that's the case when it comes to the more important things in life too. What matters is not, uh, when it comes to faith, is not how much faith you feel, it's who your faith is in. Because Jesus is true and faithful. The question is, do you trust him? Have you put your trust in him? The nature of faith in Jesus becomes more obvious when it's contrasted with our own human efforts. That's what... Uh, we had that reading from Romans chapter 3. Paul, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he emphasises how futile and wrong it is to try to achieve a relationship with God by our own efforts. Our sin runs so deep that we can't be right with God simply by ourselves. How can we be rescued from God's judgment? Now, you, you might think, oh, well, what we've got to do is we obey God's law. Here's the law that God tells us what to do. We do it. No. Merely having God's law doesn't really help us at all. Merely knowing what God wants us to do to be good people doesn't help. God's law seems to, in some ways, make the whole situation worse because it shows how sinful we are. It shines a light on our sin. That's why we can't be justified, that is, declared right with God, our creator and judge. We can't be justified by our own human efforts. Our lies, our sin, run too deep within us. We can only be justified by faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. As it says there in Romans chapter 3, Jesus is the only one who's true and faithful. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that since Jesus died for us, those who believe in Jesus are justified before God. And we can have that full assurance. It's not about us. It's about him. That's why faith in Christ matters so much. It's, it's relevant to our past. It's relevant to the foundation of our relationship with God. It's, it's how we can be sure that God loves us. 
Um, do you think that our relationship with God depends on our own ability or our own performance or even our own truthfulness? Then we'll never be sure that God loves us. We'll never be sure that we're good enough. But trusting in Jesus, who is true and faithful, gives us that assurance of love and life and forgiveness now and into eternity. And that truth about justification by faith in Jesus brings long-lasting peace and joy and hope, even in suffering. Paul goes on to talk about that in Romans chapter 5. That makes all the difference in the world. Um, Putting our faith in Jesus Christ is not just how we start our Christian lives. It's got enormous implications for how we continue to live our Christian lives day by day. Here's a few examples. Faith in Jesus Christ is foundational for prayer. When you trust in Jesus Christ and God's promises through him, that should lead us to an attitude of humble thankfulness and dependence. And that's expressed first and foremost in prayer. That's what prayer is. It's just verbalising faith, coming before God in trust and asking him for what we need. A daily life of faith is expressed in a daily life of humble and thankful prayer. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ is the deepest and most secure basis for human relationships as well. Because it's the great equaliser. It teaches us that before God, we're all in need of salvation. We're all sinners justified by faith in Christ Jesus. It's just really easy to forget this and assume that, that, that we're better than others, that somehow, and, and, and polarise around other issues as if, as if I'm better than you. That's why faith in Christ matters so much for our relationships. And faith in Jesus Christ also helps us when suffering comes our way, when we face really hard circumstances. Or as Christians, when we face slander or opposition from the world, we can be tempted to put our faith in powerful, charismatic human leaders who promise to rescue us in this life and bring us wealth and freedom, whatever it is, we'd be tempted to overlook or excuse the lies of these great leaders for the sake of some earthly cause. But the truth in Jesus teaches us to trust in Christ first and foremost, not to look for our final salvation in those human leaders. Jesus is true and faithful. He can be trusted above all. So the Bible does call each of us to make a decision. And I want to ask you today, do you believe this truth? Do you believe Jesus? Have you put your faith in Jesus? I'm assuming I'm speaking at the church weekend away. Many of you have, but that's not necessarily true of everyone. Will you believe Jesus? Because Truth claims this big, they can't be ignored. They need to be either believed or rejected. Of course, we do often try to avoid making choices about these truth claims, don't we? That's what Pilate did. He just tried to avoid making a choice. What's truth? He did it by questioning the very idea of truth and playing his political power games. And they kept him in power for a while, but his power couldn't hold out against the truth forever. Pilate died a few years later. Caesar died. The whole Roman Empire, he still fall crumbled. But the testimony about Jesus Christ just continues and continues and continues. And here it is. And here we are. And this truth that is found in Jesus Christ has far-reaching implications for truth in our lives, in our churches, in our world, in our communities. We'll look at more at those 
uh, tomorrow. Shall we pray? Father, we praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for his truth, his truthfulness, his faithfulness. We praise you for the testimony of so many witnesses. Father, help us to continue to trust. And Father, we pray that you would enable our hearts, our minds, our lives to be fixed upon him in whom there is salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.